My name is David Hershkovitz. I'm the founder of Paper Magazine, and this is Light Culture. Listen, learn, and stay ahead of the curve as I knock heads with cultural disruptors of the past, present, and future. Light Culture is brought to you by Burb, the Vancouver-based cannabis brand. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Light Culture. One thing Kanye West can do that is beyond dispute is recognize genius in others. Not that Stephen Smith was an unknown in the industry before teaming up with West as Yeezy's creative director, already a legendary sneaker designer with signature shoes running from New Balance to Reebok and beyond. He was at a low point in his career. He had walked away from a big job at Nike, the world's sneaker mecca, and was home feeling despondent when the phone rang. It was Kanye wanting to talk about Stephen Smith coming over to work with him as design director of Yeezy Labs. Even the prospect of commuting from Portland to Wyoming to the Kanye compound where the West Brand Idea Factory was in full effect did not deter him. Before he knew it, he was on board. The prospect of freedom to design without the bullshit corporate culture that stifled his ideas, winning out over comfort and security. So now, Stephen, how do you feel a few years later? What do you think about your decision? Would you do it all over again? Oh, absolutely. And it was actually at that time, it was Calabasas where his home was. Uh, We hadn't moved to Wyoming yet. So yeah, it was interesting. It wasn't a bad commute, so it seemed to make some sense. And, um, you know, three, four days at a time, I told them I'd love to come work with them, but I I really wasn't interested in moving to California. If I could stay in Oregon, it'd all be great. So that's what we kind of arranged. And so I kind of go where he goes. And yeah, it's been a, a magical four years where before you were restrained with corporate calendars and trying to hit margins and make the shoot cheaper every year. You you had to make it better, which was kind of nonsensical. And uh, with him, it's all all that baggage and garbage from the past is just gone. We, We create the new and that's it. And it's liberating. Some people can make the adjustment, others can't. You know, they need guardrails, they need rules. But, you know, I've always lived in kind of a different world. Kanye and I talk about time and space a lot in the future and you know we were living in the future and everyone else was in the present or the past. So they catch up to us eventually and then we we're still in the future. So it's it's very different. You know, I look at things like the the Fury, it was very futuristic then and people were like, what is that thing? And it's taken them years to really see to see that it stood as this uh, really different visionary icon. And even today, it still looks futuristic. So, you know, that's, that's the way I've always thought about a lot of these projects and the designs. And designing with him is that ability to, to create this magic, the, the future that you always wanted. But the other the companies were too ignorant or scared to see you know, part of it is fearlessness. Not that you're not afraid of things, because you never know. There's always an element of fear, but 
knowing that you're on the right path and believing in it is what's critical. Well, it must be unusual to have a CEO of, you know, of the kind that Kanye is, someone who doesn't come from the financial world, who isn't thinking about all those issues all the time, who's just on a journey of exploration and discovery. Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing because it's like, well, you know, you find yourself pulling back because it's been ingrained in you. You're like, well, it costs a lot of money. And he's like, so? <laughs> like, all right, well, game on, you know? Um, and you still, you know, inherently you don't want to waste people's money. So you still find out the best economical way to do things just out of respect. And that's the way it should be. It shouldn't be just like go mad and spend people's money like water. It's like be smart about it. Spend sure. a little and then you make a lot from that investment. Yes, and also respect to your own craft. You know, you could always, you know, put gold on top of everything and make oh, it yeah. shiny and beautiful as well. So what have you learned from the experience so far that uh, you'd like to share or you think would be worth sharing? Yeah, I can't get into a lot of the details of, of the how and the why, but it's a different creation process than I had worked in in the rest of my career. It's a lot like music. It's very different than traditional design. And it's cool because you're producing. You're not necessarily designing within a corporate landscape. You're, you're producing cool, exciting products that do good or, or help the world as, as part of what you do. You know, case in point with the eco foam that we used on the new foam runner based in algae. So that's, that's really cool. And manufacturing in the U.S., which is pretty, pretty epic to me. Yeah, there's a whole corporate culture around the company as well that is, uh, you know, being sustainable, making things in America, using algae, just trying to be as progressive and thoughtful about uh, the ecology as, as part of the process. A lot of other companies talk the talk, but then when it comes to actually doing it, it's another thing because they're, they're big uh, leviathans, you know, you, you can't. You can't get out of the way of that a lot of the times, and we're small and nimble. We sell a lot of product. We make a lot of a lot of money with it, but we're small and nimble and can accomplish things others can't. Do you think that this COVID world that we're in now and all the changes that may result of it will also impact design? There's a lot of talk that people aren't dressing up in the same way as they used to, or thinking of just wearing their old clothes more and just sort of a different approach to lifestyle. Has that entered your thinking at all? It's kind of hard to say because there's still a hunger and a thirst for what we create, which is pretty cool. We haven't slowed down a bit through all of this. The impact on the traveling has had some very minor effect just because you don't get as much face-to-face -face time. But as far as the fashion side of it, I mean, you think of it, one of Kanye's big tenets is uh, easy makes life easy. So we were already making clothes that you could go to work or just chillax in. And, uh, you know, so it <laughs> fits in. It's, uh, you're, as yeah, you said man. earlier, you were ahead of the time and now people are catching up and now you're going, taking a couple of more steps forward. Who doesn't like to be comfortable, <laughs> you know? <laughs> no, for real. Yeah. Are you still living in Portland? Yeah, uh, just south of there. It's where I lived for 24 years. Yeah, so how do you feel about suburb. all the craziness that's going on there right now? Like the <sighs> government intervention and the, and the whole 
you know, it's very far away from here in New York. I don't want to touch on too much of it for to give people political <laughs> ammunition, but I'm yeah. not happy about them destroying downtown Portland. You know, it was a beautiful little downtown, and now it looks like freaking Beirut. I mean, they've destroyed the statues. I mean, it's an elk. You destroyed an elk. What does that have to do with anything? They destroyed the fountain that surrounds it and burn a fire in it every night. The entire downtown core is covered in plywood and graffiti. I don't even recognize Portland anymore. It's, it's sad because these, these kids don't understand. You know, they, they think they're making a point, but they're basically destroying people's lives, all the people who worked in those businesses, the businesses that people have spent their whole lives building, and any of their future employment for entry-level jobs and stuff, even in the fashion world. Because like H&M, Nordstrom, the Nike town, Columbia store, it, it's just gone. That stuff's gone. Chrome, the Chrome store is boarded up. All your opportunities to in the past would have been a foot into the business through retail and then work your way into marketing or sales through into a brand or even product. You've shut your own door. That's the sad part about it. The companies that are here base a lot of a lot of their hiring on local people through those stores. They become almost like audition studios or minor league teams where you you test your metal and then can rise into a Nike or an Adidas or a Columbia sportswear, you know? It's kind of they don't realize they're they're shooting themselves in the foot and destroying their own downtown. You don't like the the, the tactics, but do you support the uh, principles of, of what they're protesting about? Yeah, I mean, there's nothing wrong with equality for all. It's great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, who, who would say that's a bad thing? It's just, I don't, I don't get the destroying your, you know, it's like taking a crap in your own living room and going, ah, that's great. I proved a point. It's like, you still got a piece of crap in your living room and you got to look at it all the time. Yeah. You know? well, yeah and we've seen in other you know, situations like in Atlanta, for example, where, you know, the people who actually lived in the neighborhood had to come out and tell people, you know, we live here, don't destroy yeah. our community, uh, you know, just protest, yes, of course, but, you know, you're ruining our lives and our homes, so cut it yeah. out. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I, I know, there's a lot going on to process these days, and, you know, and it's an ongoing struggle to to try to figure it all out, or probably impossible, actually. I don't know very much about you. You describe yourself to me in an email as an old straight-edge punk. <laughs> what, yeah. What does that mean? Tell me, you know, like where you grew up and, and what your life was like, your childhood influences. I mean, I grew up in a uh, dying industrial town in southern Massachusetts. It was all manufacturing, and I saw, I saw all the factories closing. and. Uh, you know, a lot of that impacted me to where I am today with the desire to bring back manufacturing, to see some of those historic mills just be run down and boarded up. So yeah, and, and in that environment in south of Boston, you know, you're, you're an Irish kid and, you know, I always say either you become the police or you ran from the police. And um, yeah, which one were you? <laughs> there's a lot of police <laughs> in my family. I bet, yeah. <laughs> So I, uh, I ended up very introverted and an artist, and I spent a lot of my time drawing and building things. And I had a grandfather who was very uh, hands-on oriented and did a lot of fine detail woodworking and carpentry. 
So he taught me all those things. And he was also from that generation where they could fix or do anything of plumbing on the house, wire your entire house if you wanted to. So he taught me all that skill and craft. So I started to understand how things worked, what they did. Again, a lot of that ended up shaping who I am today and how I approach product design. It's like, I don't just design things to be different. I design it to be better. And that quest for better is what takes you to do new and different. Growing up Boston Irish, there was a lot of drinking, but I, I saw it all as a kid. Didn't want to be part of it. And at that time in the early 80s was the beginning of straight edge in the East Coast and, and West Coast pockets as well. But um, there, there was a lot of it going on in Boston, like SSD control, uh, bands like that, minor threat, slap shot in the, in the Boston area. And so I, I kind of like the ideals of like, I, I didn't need these poisons or uh, external substances to alter my mind or my thinking or slow it down and figure I'm pretty whacked out enough as it is. Uh, And so I kind of adopted that kind of straight edge mentality of very pure lifestyle. I ran and was uh, okay runner. And again, that piqued my interest to go get my job at New Balance out of college because I ran in New Balance shoes and the idea of being able to design sneakers that you yourself could run in was pretty mind-blowing to me. And when I started, this this really didn't exist as a career. There were a handful of us that started it uh, as a career for, for people. You know, they laughed at me back at design school when I went back and said, yeah, I'm working at New Balance. And they're like, you're designing sneakers? And I'm like, yep, that shaped that part of it. You know, I always laugh and I say, if you remember Married with Children, Al Bundy was like, yeah, scored the winning touchdown for Polk High. And I always say that was my Al Bundy moment because I ran high school track. So I, I was interested in, in sneakers and, and running. And it, it, again, led me to that, that first job at, at New Balance out of school. But it was cool where I was located in Massachusetts. You're halfway between Boston and Providence. So you could go see... Unbelievable shows, and if you know, if you went to see like The Damned or Murphy's Law or New York, you could see them in Boston one night, see them in Providence the next night, and uh, double up on all your concerts. And it was really cool. Uh, So I saw amazing amounts of bands. I mean, four nights to five nights out of the week, I was at shows. It was a cool time, and that influenced a lot of the way I I, I thought about things because a lot of it was rejecting convention, rejecting the norm, seeing things and figuring things out for yourself. And that's what a lot of the, the straight edgers were about. You know, I didn't need a scene. It was good, good times. And when you say you were drawing, what were you drawing? Were you making comics? Were you drawing products, nudes? <laughs> Just, yeah, I mean, you had to do that at school, but I mean, I, I, I was always designing stuff, you know, machinery, cars, um, spaceships, guns, planes, uh, making my own tools if I need them from those skills from my grandfather, guitar ideas. So I started to, uh, taught myself how to build electric guitars. And that, and that, that, that's another good case in point is when I was in uh, freshman in high school, a bunch of my friends were getting electric guitars. And I was like, oh, I would like one. So I went and asked my mom and they're like, wow, we don't really have any spare money for that, you know? And I said, well, what if I, what if I built one? 
And I said, would you at least give me the money for the supplies? You know, it's like a quarter of the cost. They're like, yeah, you know, if you're going to do a skill or a craft out of it, sure. And my grandmother worked at a lumber yard, so she got me the, the wood. And my grandfather had all the tools. So I built my first electric guitar when I was 16. And it was, again, one of those hold my beer moments, even though I don't drink. Because the other guys were like, you can't build a guitar. And I was like, hang on a minute. So two weeks later, I went back to school, brought in my electric guitar. They're like, where'd you get that? I said, I, I built it because you said it couldn't be done. And uh, they're like, oh, can you make me one? I'm like, no, you said it couldn't be done. Go make one yourself. That kind of set up a lot of that mentality of, of how I operate. And all I need is a challenger to tell me something can't be done and I'll look out because I'll do it. You, you grew up in an era where, as you described it, everything was very hands-on. You learned how to work with your hands. Whereas today, most of the work is on the computer. And it's possible, or maybe it isn't, you'll correct me. And it's also you know, possible to make things that were never possible to make before because of, of what the computer can do and computer printing. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the 3D printing has allowed us to do some incredible stuff. I mean, you could always draw it and design it, but they could never make it. So it's, it's refreshing to see that. Again, I was drawing things with smart electronics and shoes in 1990, conceptually at Reebok, even before the Fury. And they all just looked at me like, are you on drugs? And I'm like, remember I'm the straight edge, straight straight edge, edge. punk. <laughs> yeah, come on. Uh, they're like, where do these ideas come from? I said, I don't know, visions? I always think of... Of Nikola Tesla would say he would he would receive these visions from other worlds and from the future, and I, I wonder about that sometimes about <laughs> some of the designs and some of those things were way ahead of their time, and people were like, "What is this?" And I'd describe it to them, and it was like science fiction to them, you know. And but I could see it, and that was the thing with a lot of my things. It wasn't pure fantasy; it was always rooted in some actuality or some engineering or what what could be. And so it's fun to see a lot of those things that you had this vision for with technology catching up to it all, to see them come to life. Because people would be like, if I saw a design or something, they're like, oh yeah, I remember I, I drew that like in you know, 1989. And they're like, who's in? You designed it first. I'm like, no. <laughs> I said, I said I, I'm not begrudging anyone or jealous of anything. I said, I'm more excited. You're excited to see those things that you envisioned and dreamed coming to fruition and becoming reality. Because at the time, you were like a, a team of one that could see it. And that's part of design is your, your drawing is your communication tool. You're explaining to people, giving them access to the vision in your head. You know, that's a collection of things that you've seen assembled and reassembled or reimagined and out comes the, the magic and the new, you know. Well, yeah, it's very much like an artist would work. However, they don't have to then, you know, pass their ideas through a whole network of committees and approval systems. And, you know, even they don't even have to explain themselves, period. They don't have to say, I had a vision. I can't imagine what it would have been like if you went... Maybe there were some sympathetic cells. I don't want to be too harsh. But, <laughs> Paul uh, Fireman, <laughs> he, he, he was awesome. He'd be like, what do you guys drawn up and I'd explain it to him. He's like, oh, that's amazing. Go do it. And you'd be like, okay, it does, the tech doesn't exist, but 
there's <laughs> fragments of it. But it was much like with Yay, we had the ability when we had our first innovation team at Reebok to, to explore the idea, to try it. And out of it came things like Pump and Instapump and Graphlight, Hexalite, DMX, and all the amazing technologies we did at Reebok. It came from that total freedom to create. And it was funny, his fireman was a sales guy, but he was also one of the most inspirational for us because he knew... He was at Nike? He was the owner of Reebok. Oh, Reebok, okay. And uh, Phil Knight was Nike. And Phil was like that too. You know, Phil just wanted to win. Fireman wanted to make money. But they both, both know and understood that, you know, through think tanks and blue sky thinking is how you got there. You know, if you're going to make the same old stuff, I mean, why at that point it just becomes like a cornflake? You know, do I buy the Kellogg's cornflake? Do I buy the General Mills cornflake? Or do I go buy the cornflake from Trader Joe's? Or do you get something you've never seen before, you know? <laughs> well, that's kind of how it was, right, for a long time, that for most of these companies, they didn't really innovate. Yeah. They, they were putting out their classics year after year. The converse never changed. Yeah. Kids never changed. So what happened? I think it was that time, you know, Nike had their team, they called Ape, which was the precursor to the kitchen. It was advanced product engineering. And Reebok at the same time decided they wanted to start this advanced concepts group. So I was recruited by a guy, Steve Burris, that I worked with at New Balance originally. He had left New Balance and gone to Reebok and I had left New Balance and gone to Adidas. and. He, uh, he was like, I'm thinking of starting this new team. I, I, I think you'd be great at it. You want to come up and be the design guy for this? And I'm like, oh, I don't know. And then Adidas started slashing left and right. Adidas US down to, to the bone. And then they told the rest of us, you know, you can stay working with Adidas, but everybody's going to move to Germany. And you know, as a 23-year-old kid, I'm like, yeah, Nuremberg doesn't seem like exciting. <laughs> I don't think I'm going to go. And so I called up Burris and said, let's talk. And I, I drove up and uh, got the job the next day at Reebok. And then we put together this seedling of a team with myself and Burris is the manager, myself and two development slash uh, bio engineer guys. And um, we were kind of, we always call ourselves a land of misfit toys because we didn't fit in with the rest of the organization, but none of us were the smartest person at the room. But when you put us together, magic happened. Because we, we just had an open mind, and, and Paul Fireman just let us create and explore, similar to the environment I have now. It's, it's a lot like that. We just have this freedom. Imagine the vision. What could it be? You know, and Gay drops nuggets and... and uh, sends you thumbnails and you just explode it and explore it out comes the magic yeah but what could it be i mean i'm perplexed constantly trying to figure out what could be the new thing (laughs) there's you know a lot of new things coming out constantly they're not all reinventing the wheel as uh you know you do more often than most people but you know, there's just a—it's just a little thing. It's—it's—it's it's, it's one package. It's all—it has these things that it has to be. Yeah. It's already pre—you know, like a. So what is it? The colors? Is it I, materials? Obviously, is a big part of it right now. I mean, it's a lot of those things. It's one of those things we all taught ourselves in those days of innovation at Reebok. 
you see something interesting, whether it's part of your industry or not, and then you figure out if you can integrate it or explore it and uh, come up with something completely new and different. Um, aerospace is a huge influence for all of us, but you never know. You never know where something's going to come from. You could see a kitchen sponge and go, that's the aha moment of the spark that turns on the light bulb that you come up with the next amazing thing. You know, it's, it, I always said you had um, the four or five Fs, fit, form, function, and fashion. And, and uh, if you address all those things and, or see something that it addresses that, it's the beginnings of the idea. Who doesn't like things that fit well? Uh, who doesn't well, like the pleasing fashion, form? Fashion is also a new component of the shoe that has, you know, arrived over, I don't know, what decade? It's definitely blurred, but at the time, you know, when I was at Reebok, I did some spikes for the Atlanta Olympics for the sprinting athletes. It was during the Dan and Dave period, actually. If you remember that period at Reebok, I did this instant pump track spike with a carbon fiber bottom, and it was the first one with an aerodynamic shroud over it which was inspired by downhill skiers and speed skaters. And all of a sudden, somebody sends me a picture of Vogue of some runway model walking down in a pair of carbon fiber track spikes, you know, which had one purpose, <laughs> you know, to, to do a, a quarter as fast as humanly possible. And then here's this runway model in a dress wearing these track spikes. It's got to be miserably uncomfortable but damn it looked cool <laughs> so that was you think the, the the fashion moment for the arrival well, there, were, to... there, there were definitely that and then snippets of things you know run dmc with the shell toe adidas yeah, course, that brought yes. in that brought in uh culture as well as fashion uh mm -hmm. for, for me when the furies showed up you know, again, that was always one of the pivotal moments for me as a kid growing up in Boston as I see Steven Tyler come out and I'm on the MTV Music Awards and I was like, oh my God, my rock hero is wearing a product that I designed. How freaking cool is that? And then about the same time, Bjork started to show up in it. Bjork wore them constantly for years. So those guys were kind of early adopters on the fashion side of taking these things I built machines for running. You know, you look at the Fury, it's not really a sneaker. It's, it's mechanical. You know, it's, it's a machine. I, I love machines. And that, to me, was a machine for running. And uh, to see these guys adopt that as a, as a look and a style was kind of weird to me because you know, I was so performance-focused. Those moments and those people, for me, expanded it into the fashion world that it could be more than just a running shoe. And do you take that into account now when you are designing something that it can, it can and maybe will if you see someone like Jeremy Scott, you know, and some of these Balenciaga shoes and, you know, these the extremes that people are coming up with regard to design and, you know, the basic sneaker. Does that inspire you at all? In some ways, but it's what separates what, what I do and what Kanye does and that it's still rooted in legitimate sport and I'm I'm part of the conscience of that. That was the element I brought to him was this 34 years of experience creating high performance sporting footwear and other other stuff too, accessories and gear and 
I did all kinds of things like body armor for riot police and uh, armored padding for the striker crews in the U.S. military. Uh, I did telecommunication devices for Bell Laboratories, all kinds of crazy stuff. It adds that strand of legitimacy and performance into the DNA of what Easy is, you know. So it makes it more than, say, a Balenciaga that is purely made for fashion or to, to look different. The stuff that we do still serves the purpose, moves the bar for comfort, and and just happens to look good as part of all of that. You know, it's 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 a recipe as opposed to a f- purely a formula, if that makes sense. And high performance is actually a trend as well that I think even, you know, as we started talking about earlier with the coronavirus and how that impact, its impact on design, I think I had already had seeing it coming anyway, the idea of people wanting, you know, lightweight in the winter, you know, sports influenced outerwear from skiing and snowboarding worlds and things like that, that make it into, you know, quote unquote fashion. Yeah, I mean, a lot of the the truly performance outdoor brands that were used for mountaineering in the past, you know, you you needed their products or you can die. You know, <laughs> <laughs> that's what's so cool about them, you know. Like, if you're going to go climb Everest, you better have a Patagonia or a North Face jacket, but you can still walk down Fifth Avenue in it <laughs> and look badass. Yeah, and, and people do, you know, to wear those heavy winter coats that weigh, you know, 20 pounds, just the coat, you know, and be able to substitute something that's just lightweight and still does the job is fantastic. Yeah, again, it's that, it's those brands' strand of DNA of performance that then weave into the the fashion side of it as well. You know, it's still rooted in in pure performance. You buy it and you know it's going to work. At the end of the day, it's still going to work. It's still going to be an amazingly warm coat, no matter what it looks like, you know. And that's what we strive for as well. And you and you went back to school at a later date. I see Pacific Northwest College of Art. What did you go to learn at that point? Because you are already well into your career. Welding. Welding. I, I, <laughs> yeah, I, I had an old Volkswagen bus. And I wanted to restore it, so I went there and. and uh, it seemed like the most accessible welding class at the art school. So you learned sculptural welding and uh, then was able to reapply that back into like performance welding of putting floors in by rotten old VW van, you know? <laughs> oh, so you have time to work on cars as well? When I, when I can, when I'm when not traveling can. or weekends. And I vintage race cars. I do all kinds of crazy stuff. You actually race them as well? Yeah, I vintage race which is a lot of fun. So what kind of cars do you like? And is it primarily, again, combination performance design that turns you on? Or is it yeah, one more than I the mean, other? A lot of those classics, Shelby Cobras, Trans Am era cars, not Pontiac Trans Am, but Trans Am racing, you know, because that was unlimited. It was like the equivalent of unlimited hydroplanes. It was unlimited, no rules. Uh, sports cars were like the Porsche 917 10s and, McLarens and things came out of I love vintage Porsches and the the irony is I drive a vintage Porsche but I race a vintage Volkswagen Beetle and so it's part of that's a little bit of that disruptor punk rock how fast can that Beetle go 
about 125. Oh, no. Yeah. It's, it must be <laughs> rattling. <laughs> the front gets light above 90, so it's a little scary. Wow. But, you know, it's, it's again, it's that kind of disruption because people have their Porsches and their Alfa Romeos and MGs, and you come with this bug, and people are like, is that a joke? And I'm like, what do you mean a joke? You know? <laughs> You get it to handle as well as the Porsches once you tweak the suspension right. I mean, it's a little more bulbous and top-heavy and not as aerodynamic, but I can keep up with some of the early Porsches as well with a Beetle, which no one no one likes to get beat by a teal Beetle. Hell no. no <laughs> not even a Honda. <laughs> no. no way. So uh, you're credited as, you know, I don't know how you feel about this, with the granddad of the dad shoe. <laughs> I know about the dad jeans, and I know about the mama jeans. What is a dad shoe? Uh, you know, I, I can guess, but I'd like to hear what you say. The all white, white navy, white French blue, gray, you know, the Steve Jobs New Balances, 900 series <laughs> grays, 1500s grays. You know, it was the one where the dad in Iowa would mow the lawn in. And then all of a sudden it became like this icon of chilling. <laughs> and so, <laughs> I don't know, it just became a trend because they were comfortable. You know, they were just simple, understandable, comfortable sneakers and uh, high value quality. The leathers were always really good quality. And so it stood for those things. People who I know who have bad backs or something and need, they always would swear by the new balance is the best shoe for them. Yeah, doctors, you know. I mean, you always see doctors in, in new balances. And it's almost like IZODs, you know, when you, and, when you and I were teenagers, you know, it was that country club lifestyle. It was, there was things about the lifestyle that you associated with it. And I think like those new balances, because they were more expensive, high quality. I think it was that aspirational thing of it that ignited this whole dad shoe craze, you know. But I'll show you a picture that people, people, you know, they see me now as the 50-something-year-old dad. But, you know, that, that's the guy that oh. designed the dad shoes. <laughs> okay. <you know? laughs> Brad. <laughs> so I think it's funny that, you know, I have that moniker now as a dad, but back then it was a 22 year old punk rock kid. <laughs> but on the other side of the dad shoe, you have the, you know, the person who's spending as much money as it's necessary to get the, whether it's the Yeezy or some Jordans, you know, original boxed and then wearing it, you know, like sort of almost, I don't know if you can call it inappropriate or not. It looks cool, but it also looks like maybe somebody's also trying too hard. Yeah, I don't know. I think it's that quest for individuality. And if you look at, if you look at what we create, and that's what I think is so cool about it, we create these, this wearable art. And, you know, some people, they can't go get a Da Vinci or even a Bansky, you know, but you go buy a pair of sneakers for under a grand and feel great about it. You can use them. You can wear them. You could even resell them. Yeah, you could resell them. You can show off at them. You know, I mean, it's a status thing too. And especially with some of the limited editions, like you were one of a thousand people that were able to get that all over the world, you know? I mean, and, and so in a lot of ways, it's, it's, I, I loved it 
coming out of school, they geared our curriculum towards the industries that were there at that time in the Massachusetts Miracle. And it was the early tech days. So it was Wang, Digital, Data General, and Corning Medical. So all these guys I graduated with went to go work and design products for those companies. At the time, the the computer, computer business was small. It was specialized within tech labs and the medical device. Those guys would go design something that 10, 20 surgeons around the world in some operating theater used. And I mean, it, they did amazing things. But with me, when I designed something, 250,000 to half a million people have access to my design. And it was pretty amazing being able to travel anywhere in the world. And you see someone who appreciated your vision and your art. And even to this day, I, you know, I, I'm still humbled by it. And I'll go up to people and like, thank you. Thank you for appreciating my design. I, I designed that shoe. You know, when I see people in 574s, I'm like, I designed that, I designed that shoe. It's like, I'm, I'm very proud and excited to see that you spent $100 on that. Thank you. You know, thank you for appreciating my art. So it's pretty cool. You know, it's very different. And you like, you wear it as well, I'm told, right? And you actually enjoy the, the you know, coming out with some a rare shoe or pre-release and, you know, going out and waiting for people to kind of spot it and wonder, what the hell is this guy doing wearing these shoes? Especially here. It used to be great here when, you know, working at Nike or uh, before when I worked at Adidas and you had some early release and you'd be downtown. And you knew somebody from one of the other companies would see you in it and they'd be like, holy crap, you know, or you would see somebody from one of the other companies and something test running it at lunch. And then you'd go back and rethink things or tell somebody like, hey, I just saw this shoe here, you know, and they're like, what? What's that one look like? I said, I don't know. I've never seen it before, you know. So it's, you know, like I said, it's pretty cool. And, you know, in, in, in those days in the 90s, there was a lot of corporate espionage between all of us and the companies very, to this day, still very secretive about what we create until it's dropped. But, you know, and then we, we within Yeezy tease things all the time to, to just build the excitement for people for the next drop. I wanted to ask you about that corporate espionage thing. So has, has anyone ever actually stolen a design and gone out and produced it? When we were working at Reebok, I had, I had worked on this uh, pump shoe that had an electronic pressure device in it so that you could adjust your right shoe the same as your left shoe logarithmically. And it also had pump units under the foot so you could adjust the cushioning of the midsole separate forefoot and heel. So by having this electronic device, you could calibrate your right foot to your left foot on the shoes. Or if you had uh, some problem with your foot, you could adjust the cushioning slightly different forefoot to heel and right to left. And my development counterpart was in Hong Kong in the airport and he had the luggage cart and he had his briefcase in it and it was half unzipped and he went to go get his luggage off the carousel and came back and someone had stolen a whole dossier on all of the electronic devices, the suppliers and everything. And within a week, Someone from Adidas had reached out to the electronics company asking about doing pressure gauges and things with them. We had gone completely outside the sporting goods industry to Casio 
that had nothing to do with anyone from the sneaker business who would have ever known to reach out to them. So we knew right away that that's who stole the, the intellectual property. It was pretty amazing. And were you able to do anything about it? No. I mean, you just, no. we just told them, don't, de- don't deal with them. And they're like, uh, we weren't going to anyway. We were just shocked that they all of a sudden, of all the companies, they reached out to them, you know. Because we, we had been working with Sony, Casio, and Alps, which is the parent company of Alpine, on these electronic pressure gauges. So it was pretty, it was pretty mind-blowing to think that somebody reached in and stole yeah. his But not, so, not today. I mean, if you think about it today, it's not as mind-blowing. Oh, yeah. Um, I mean, you, you could know, easily just kind of snap a picture with your phone. <laughs> you know, right, you which they do as well with the Apple phones constantly, right? Someone is always trying to like, release the early version of what it's going to look like. Yeah. Uh, I think William Gibson, and in one of his books... Maybe it was called pattern recognition. I'm not 100% sure, but the plot is partly revolves around genes, denim, of like that everyone is trying to get, you know, to steal the secret of the denim <laughs> in order to rule the world or you yeah. know, whatever. <laughs> so the sneakers become like that, the thing, isn't it? I mean, if, if, if you had to pick an object that has universal appeal you know, that's yeah. not obviously a diamond or some, you know, crazy mineral. But there's millions valuable. of dollars to be made off of those designs, you know? So, yeah, I mean, it's, again, it's like somebody stealing a piece of artwork. You just don't do it or breaking into the, the Louvre or stealing the Hope Diamond, you know, potentially on the turnaround of what you make and profit from those designs. Do you feel good when you hear people compare the Yeezy to the Apple of apparel. <laughs> so everyone uses the Apple comparison for almost anything at this point, but I'm always curious whether that's a good thing or not, in your case particularly. I think it is. Uh, there's a purity to Apple product and understandability, just a natural understandability to it, towards it. You never ask, why is it there or why it was made? You pick up the iPhone, you know how to work it. It's swipes and motions and it feels nice in your hand and it does what it promises to do that's what we we go with with the easy product you know it's simple to understand a lot of our conversation so far has been about fashion and performance and uh you know image and branding and things like that and I'd like to read to you a quote that you gave. The cool thing about the Yeezy is this. We've kind of ruined the industry by creating a non-categorical shoe. What is it for? I don't know, but you can run in it. You can go to gym in it. You can play ball in it. That's what's kind of cool. So do you feel like now that you've broken the mold that people are just going to start copying that, you know, that idea that, okay, we're going to throw out the concept of purely any one thing you can see it happening on basketball courts you know everything's not these high tops it's not even a five eights anymore it's mids and lows you see these players in lows whereas in the past people would have been horrified like oh you're gonna break your ankle where's the ankle support you know where's this brace that the shoes used to be but you can already see the influence of that in in some of the players because they they would try these other things. Like I saw a couple of the NBA guys playing in the Yeezy 500s, low top, which is crazy. 
but again, you know, it, it's still, it's, it shows that strand of performance into the DNA that it, it can do it. It may not have been a hundred percent designed for that, but part of me being involved in it is that it just naturally, when I create it, it's the way my brain works. It's like, if I do this, this, and this, it'll be good for that regardless of what it looks like. And then you can make it look nice and it's all intertwined. I go back to the Reebok Fury. You think about it. If you look at the Fury, there's a Bajas purity to it. If you took away one piece off of that shoe, it will no longer work. And that to me was cool because it was just distilled to the essence of what it, what it was. It's, it's just a natural way for me to think when I start sketching something. So do you actually think about the ankle as well, particularly? I mean, it's built in already to the DNA of what you're creating. Yeah. As you something know. you always consider. Yeah, because, I mean, it's you're, ser- you're serving a person and you're enhancing the performance of their foot with the footwear. So how can you just do that naturally? It just, it just happens after this long, you know? So where are we now? I know, I know. Uh, you know, you're working for this volatile individual who has been in the news quite a bit lately, particularly, but always is. Obviously, brilliant man in many ways, but also quite controversial. What does it feel like to be working for anyone who, in in a state where COVID, it's <laughs> Black Lives Matter. You know, personal issues are, are blowing up. How does one handle all of that? Through all of it, he still feeds me concepts and ideas and gives me license to create. So I just kind of stay and focus on why I'm there and what I do best. And that's what I do for him. You know, I just never stop creating. I mean, he and I are a lot alike, believe it or not, and that we're these creative sharks. And, um, you know, you, you think about it, a lot of it. I'm pretty mellow at this point in my life, but creativity is always a fine line between sanity and insanity. Uh, you have all these ideas in your head and they're fighting with you all the time. Illogic versus logic, fantasy versus reality. Sometimes one of the other things beats out the other and you end up looking not stable to people, but the genius is still behind it all. And that's the way you, you kind of have to think about it. You know, the same with myself. We're creative sharks. If we stop creating, we die, similar to a shark if they stop swimming. So I'm not done yet. He's far from done creating things and, and life. You know, I mean, he's, he's trying to solve a lot, of the, a lot of stuff, not just sneakers and fashion. You know, it's, it's architecture, it's housing, it's vehicles, everything. All these things fascinate him. And, we have the ability to explore it all, and Yeezy has the ability to become any of those brands, including, you know, the latest thing with the health and beauty, and then the the arrangement with the Gap. You know, we're gonna take it to the masses, which is something he's always wanted to do. You know, it's nice to have the exclusivity, excuse me, and the very high end product, but you don't want it to be so elitist. So, through a brand like The Gap that gives us the ability to bring the more of the apparel to the people rather than just elitists. You know, speaking about my squeaky chair, yeah. um, the Eameses and a lot of the mid-century designers that I grew up following 
or studying in college, all of these designs were meant to be mass produced to bring good design to everybody. The same kind of thing I was talking about, being able to share share these art pieces that other people can appreciate and understand and love. And a lot of these design classics have evolved into that elitist category. An Eames chair that should be $100 is like a 1000 if you go to Noel or somebody who makes it. And it's like at that point, you, you know, if Eames saw what had happened to their designs, they'd, they'd be spinning in their graves because it was about bringing good taste to everyone. And that's one of those great noble goals that Ye has is, uh, and we help him with to achieve those, those ideas and those concepts of great design and great product for everybody. Well, that's great news. Good to hear that work goes on and we can still look forward and can't wait to see what you come up with for Gap. <laughs> oh my God. So <laughs> thank you very much, Stephen Smith, for meeting with me today and uh, enjoyed our conversation very much. Oh yeah, thanks. It was a lot of fun. Go Sox. <laughs> From the West Coast. All right. <laughs> if they ever play again. <laughs> You've been listening to Light Culture. You can find us at shopburb.com, Light Culture, or at Light Culture Podcast. Thanks again to Burb. You can follow them at shopburb on Instagram. And don't forget to subscribe to and review the show. If you would like to get in touch, reach out to me directly at David Reporting. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.